a few weeks ago, um, I mentioned we were, Sarah and I and our kids went to my parents' house for a weekend on the back end of spring break. And we introduced our children to the game of Monopoly. Our children are eight, six, and four. The eight and six-year-old played. The four-year-old, we put her to bed early. So to make a, a long and painful story very short, um, I dominated the game. <laughs> We explained the rules, we began playing, and I simply, I dominated. I got three railroads, and I was just like, they were paying all the bills, stacking up the cash, landed on Park Place and Boardwalk, bought them, and then, as you know it, I mean, it was just a matter of time before I started building the houses, built the hotels. Why? Because I wanted to bankrupt them. My children, my wife, my my mom, I just, I wanted to win. And I did. I mean, just systematically, park place, bank, boardwalk, and they went down like flies. And it ended with my six-year-old crying at about 10.30 at night. And so did I really win? I I don't think so. Uh, That night ended in a blaze of glory. So, why do I say that? Well, we're used to that kind of, um, that kind of, Savagery, that kind of uh, coming at you and I'm going to come and get what you have, that mentality. We're used to that in the world, particularly in a capitalistic society that, that preys upon opportunity and tries to make a buck. We're not always used to that coming from daddy, but nonetheless. Um, but here's the question. What if there was an authority figure that didn't act like that? Uh, what if there was someone who had massive power and yet didn't use their power to exploit others or to always be looking to make an extra buck? What if there was someone, some being, somebody that actually used their power as a means uh, to enact policies and to create economies where people were served as as opposed to just being used? And what I want to suggest to you tonight is that there is that person and his name is God. And we learn about his economy and the way that he thinks about um, money and systems and people uh, in this passage in Leviticus 25. But more than just learning about that, I want us to see that, that as God gives these instructions to his people who are on the verge of entering into this vastly uh, um, productive land. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. It was a rich land, a fertile land. He's giving these instructions to a people who are about to enter into it. And he's saying, when you go in, this is how you're to live and think economically. You're not to exploit people. You're not to take advantage of the poor. And in this passage, we see God's heart again for the poor and the oppressed in a way that makes even the most liberal among us take pause. Because we begin to see that God is liberal and open and generous with the way that he thinks about giving to those in need in a way that we often don't. That God is far more committed to the well-being of those who are oppressed than we are. And and then he shows us, as I'll suggest tonight, that in Jesus we see that, that that liberality is applied to his followers' lives in a way that makes us if you're following him, that makes you more radically generous than you ever thought you could be. So this is what's uh, held out to us tonight in Leviticus 25. So let's look at it, 1 through 22. 
The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female servants and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you. And for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land, all its yields shall be for food. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. When each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. For it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the jubilee, and he shall sell to you according to the number of the years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price. And if the years are few, you shall reduce the price. For it is the number of the crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Therefore, you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them. And then you will dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell in the land securely. And if you say, What shall we eat in the seventh year? If we may not sow or gather in our, or gather in our crop, I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, so that it will pro- produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when the crop arrives. This is God's word. Tonight, I want us to I want to unpack this passage for us through three categories. First is to look at the Old Testament economics. What's going on in this passage? What was God telling them as they were on the way to the promised land? Second, I want us to go, as we've been doing, go to the New Testament and say, okay, so, so what does this mean for Jesus' followers? What does this mean for the church in our day? What do we do with this? And then lastly, to zoom back out and look at God's spiritual economy. How do, we, how do we get at doing that? So first thing here, the Old Testament economics. Excuse me, I still have allergies. Um, uh, John Hartley is an a Old Testament commentator, a scholar, and he says about this passage in Leviticus 25 that the ideas here are probably the most radical social and economic ideas in all of the Bible. And the reason that he says that, that they are radical, is because in them uh, we see a God who is radically committed to his people's freedom financially, economically. 
Remember, these people that he's commanding us to, they had just been released from, I don't know, 400 years in slavery. Literal, physical slavery, which by necessity included economic slavery. They couldn't produce anything because they didn't own land. They couldn't, I mean, everything they did was given, given to the Egyptians and they would in turn give them enough to eat to keep them alive. But through and through, it was slavery. So he's looking at, God is looking at his people who had been freed. And he's saying, as you go into this land and begin to work it as your own developing economy, I am telling you that even as a free economy, that you will, you will be tempted to, to move about that economy and to work your way in it in such a way that you will begin to exploit others. And it's not going to be that way. And I'm going to put these statutes and these rules and, and these hedges in place so that you don't do that to one another. Think about this. In an agrarian society such as it was back then, land was everything. It was everything. If you had land, you had a means to make money. You could, you could plant crops on it and take in a harvest, selling some, using the rest to feed yourself or trading with others uh, as you had need. Or you could, uh, you could lease it out as, farm, as grazing land for herds, and you could make income that way. If you had land, you had money. But what if, uh, what if the crop failed? What if the crop failed for for multiple years? What if your land wasn't leased by anyone to graze on? What if you, you got a bad reputation and people didn't do business with you? Over time, the, uh, the, the income would dry up. And when that income dried up, you, you still had to eat and you probably had a family to feed. So what you would do is you would sell your land. You would sell your land. And what we see in the passage is that the price that you sold the land for was dependent on how many years it was until the next jubilee. Okay, but you sold your your land for this amount of money. And if that amount of money ran out, then you still had to eat. So what would you do? You would indenture yourself to someone. You would say, we will work for food. It wasn't, it wasn't slavery in the way that we tend to think about slavery, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but it was a willing indenturing yourself so that you could eat and keep your family alive. But it's not hard to see how after a few cycles of this, that the very fabric of society, the family, gets brought into this economically oppressed, uh, depressed situation, if not oppressed. And what God is looking at in this as a shockingly bold way to ensure that no Jew nor his family would ever have to re-enter the economic slavery that that they just came from. He gives these rules, two in specific, um, two things to push back on this. The first is that every seventh year, it was to be a year off for the land. The passage calls it a Sabbath. And that's reflecting on the Jewish week, that every, every seventh day they were commanded, we looked at this last week, to take a day off and to rest and to not work. And then he expands the principle and says, it shall be the same way for your land, that give your land a rest, so that it could recoup its nutrients and do all these things. But not only that, he's saying give your land a rest, and the natural question would be, uh, well, where's the money going to come from? Where's the food going to come from? And God says, you're going to have to trust me. 
that in the sixth year, I'm going to make enough food come forth, enough money flow that you're going to be able to live. It was forcing them to trust God. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the year of Jubilee. That every 50th year, every seventh, seven year, the year after that, God demanded a time when all of the debts would be canceled. When all of the indentured servitude would hit reset. If you had sold yourself um, and your property and all these things, it would reset all the way back to when... Uh, to, to the way that it was drawn up and divided when God's people first came into the promised land. Now, if you really want a, uh, some thrilling Old Testament reading, you can turn to the book of Numbers and other places where they divvy out the property, and it's about like it sounds. It's like, and you go this far this way and this far this way, and you go to that river and go up this far, and it's just it's like a, a map. So this clan would get that por- parcel of property, and this clan would get that. And what the Jubilee is saying is that God is building into their life this way of not being depressed or oppressed for the course of your life. That even if things went really bad for you and your family, every 50th year it was a reset button. Everything went back. It reverted to the way that it was in the beginning. Now think about the the brilliance of this for just a second. This coming year of Jubilee, every 50th year, it ensured that every Jewish person, roughly at least once in their life, every 50th year, that they would get a complete second chance to start over at life. That they would get a complete second chance to start over. They would never have to fear that even if they were in the worst kind of situation, that their life would always just be that. They had something to look forward to and to kind of the light at the end of the tunnel that was coming. It's summer conference. It's going home after May. It's, It's that light at the end of the tunnel which carries you through. That they had that built into their calendar. It did that, but it also, it put a collar, a restraint on, on mankind's natural tendency toward greed and toward selfishness and toward accumulation. And I promise you're going to think differently about your investments and, and how much you rely on your stuff if you have built into your mindset and your calendar that every 50th year, it's all going to be taken away from you. It's going to revert back to the general population, to everyone else. And that may mean it goes to people who in your eyes didn't earn it or they don't deserve it. And God's saying, look, none of you earned it. None of you deserved it. I literally brought you from slavery through a parted sea and gave this to you. Don't for a second think it's all yours by something that you did. And so it's this built-in hedge against our natural greed. We need to get to know this side of God if you're going to understand anything about Christianity. Because what we see in this God is that God is a champion, a champion of the poor and the destitute. He's a God who requires his people to show compassion to all people. He literally builds it into their lives. And he forbids the the ruthless management of employees. and, And he resists the concentration of property and wealth in a way that, that systematically, generationally oppresses and suppresses people. 
He is against that stuff. So what does this mean for us in our day? The implications of this. Oftentimes when people want to, are kind of skeptical or critical of the Bible and they want to challenge the ongoing relevance of Christianity or the Bible in our society today, they'll look back at passages in the Old Testament and they'll say, well, I can't believe in a God or I can't trust a book that condones slavery because we see a version of slavery talked about in Scripture. But I would want to say this to them, that the Bible is actually decidedly against what we, we American people, or people in kind of the modern day, what we tend to think of as slavery. That is chattel slavery, the owning of people and the, the use of them for, for economic gain. The Bible is always and forever against that. So the thing that we've known kind of in the 1700s and before that, to be sure, as slavery, the slave trade, God is absolutely against that. And we see the principles of this passage really supporting that. That God is not for that. And that matters really on today in history. Um, So we saw the slave trade abolished, which interestingly, not coincidentally, but interestingly, The slave trade and the abolishment of slave trade was spearheaded by Christians who, surprise, surprise, understood that the Bible did not condone it, even though there were some supposed Christians who were some of the biggest slaveholders. So John Wilberforce, John Newton, uh, William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce, John Newton. Um, They were the ones at the head, at the spear point of that. This day in history, 50 years ago, Martin Luther King was assassinated. Why? Now, we would have thought that by 1968, so long after slavery was abolished officially in the United States, that our country would have been fine. We would have gotten over it, but it hadn't. We hadn't. And so he was assassinated because in Memphis, he's crying out against the, the, the effects of slavery that trickled down through the ages, the, the effects of persistent racism. King was saying, it can't be this way. And someone killed him for it. They hated the fact that he was protesting the way things were. The second implication for us is this. That Scripture, um, it guards against your well-being. It guards against that generational, familial cycle of poverty that, to be honest, that we see so often in our day if you've taken a look into poverty at all. Uh, every few years uh, in RUF, we, we do a spring break trip. Uh, we've done one to St. Louis, to Chicago. That kind of gives you a, a really up-close and personal look into the inner city, the workings of the inner city, namely uh, poverty and, and oppressed neighborhoods and things like that. And one of the things that, that they'll talk about on the trip is just the cycle of poverty and how hard it is to break out of that. Now, I'm not going to go into a big, long lesson about that, but needless to say, it becomes a systemic and systematic problem. It becomes generational. That when you learn things from your parents or you start out in this situation, it's really hard to get out of it. And you learn patterns and thoughts. And, and the way that you look at life is just totally skewed uh, by all of this stuff. In the Bible, God is here in Leviticus 25 giving, us, giving his people a way out of that sort of, of slavery and economic um, oppression. New Testament economics. On the count of three, we just need to take a breath. Because you've got to be thinking, 
well, what do we do now? There are some people in the church, even today, who want to stand up right now and say, we need to go back to that. That the church needs to go back and do that exact same thing. But for at least two reasons, we can't import that system into our day. The first of those those reasons is that we don't live in an agrarian society anymore. That we don't live in a land-based society anymore. Now, that's kind of an obvious statement to us as you're here at TU studying not farming, but all kinds of other things. Um, But basically, we we have to look and say, okay, we can't do a one-to-one overlay of Leviticus 25 to year 2018. Because that's just not where we are situationally. But secondly, and along with that, we look and see that Jesus changes the nature of, of what it means to be God's people. That back then in Leviticus and throughout all the Old Testament, God's people were a nation state, a socio-political state called Israel. Sorry, I've got this up there on the screen. Um, And Jesus, when he comes, he goes to great lengths to say, it's not that way. It's not that way anymore. That my people are a transnational people. Varying from all kinds of people and tribes and tongue and nation, as Revelation would say. That it's no longer just a simple one ethnic group, but Jesus blows that open to all kinds of ethnic groups. Now that created all kinds of difficulties for the church in the first century and challenges for them. But Jesus was insistent on it. That I came to call a new people. Don't make the mistake though of thinking that in Jesus making a new people and doing away with this socio-political reality called Israel, that he then throws out all of the economic principles too. If anything, he heightens them. He heightens them. The ethical anchors of Leviticus are repeated throughout the New Testament for for those who follow Jesus. Some of you may be familiar with the the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. If you're not, uh, that's fine. What what Jesus does is there's a rich man who comes up to him and says, uh, how do I justify myself? It says that he was trying to justify himself, to, to do life on his own and make it work. In response to him, Jesus tells a story about a man from Samaria who, who met all of the relational, physical, emotional, financial, medical needs of a, man that he, of a Jewish man, actually, that he finds lying on the side of the road. Now, to get the offense of that and the backwardness of that is to understand that Samaritans were big time looked down upon by Jewish people. So here's the lower person coming, coming and finding a higher class person and bandaging him and taking care of all of his needs. And Jesus points at that man, that Samaritan man, and in essence says, do this if you want to justify yourself. If you want to know what it looks like to live the good life and to live the righteous life, do what this man does. Now, the parable is saying lots of other things. But it is certainly saying that Jesus holds up the Samaritan man as the ideal, as the ideal person, as the ideal righteous life person. But nowhere, nowhere in the New Testament do you get the kind of explicit radical call to serve others and to give it away than you do in the book of James. In 127, in the book of James, he says this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this 
to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself stained from the world. Then he goes on in chapter 6, and this is up on the screen. He says this, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, they're crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. From cover to cover, God is telling us in Scripture that money is always going to be reaching up at you and saying, Take me. Take me as your lover. Use me as a means to get power in this world, to get ahead. That if you can just get more of me, money says, then you'll be fine. You won't need other people. And God says, That may be true. You may not need other people, but what will also happen is you won't need me. And that becomes the saddest reality of all. It's when people see that they have everything they need in possessions, and they don't see the true need of their heart. Jesus has an interaction with someone who's just called a rich man, the rich young ruler. And he comes to him and says, I've done all the righteous things. I've kept all these laws and these rules since I was young. What else do I have to do to enter your heaven? And Jesus says, oh, it's simple. Just go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And what does the next verse say? And he went away sad. Why? Because money has a way of owning us. We think we own it, but it owns us all too easily. And God's saying... To his people back then and to his people now, don't be naive. You have to protect your heart from that sort of being owned by money and possessions by giving it away radically, by disavowing yourself of your need of all the money and of all the possessions. That yes, you will need some to survive, but, but don't think that it is the means by which you will attain the good life. It will leave you wanting. James says that, that if, you, if you hold your money back in such a way that you exploit others, then you're, you may live the fat life now in luxury, but your days are numbered. Your days are numbered. Third point tonight, God's spiritual economy. Well-known pastor uh, Tim Keller was talking one time about Proverbs 19.17, which says... Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and the Lord will repay him for his deed. And Keller says this, um, obviously being up in New York, not obvious, he's a pastor up in New York, uh, in the financial district, and he, he drew this out, which most of his people would have understand, understood. He said that banks will redline certain, certain parts of a city. And what that means is that they'll, they'll kind of draw a red line around boundaries of a city that are undesirable to live in, uh, maybe have a certain socioeconomic class in them or race, and that banks will look and they won't lend money to those people because the home values in there and the property values and the economy is depressed. And so banks just won't touch it. They really avoid that cross-section of people as a whole. And Keller says that in this Proverbs passage, 
What it's saying is the exact opposite. That whoever lends to the poor lends to me. What's he saying? That that God so identifies with those who are downtrodden and oppressed and depressed economically that he says, as you are generous to them, you're generous to me. He is aligning himself with a people that tend to be excluded from the privileges of society. If you insult the poor, you insult me. And if you lend to them, you lend to me. In Matthew 25, Jesus says that on judgment day that God is going to sit on a throne and say this, I was hungry and thirsty, and you didn't give me anything to eat or drink. And the people will say, wait, when were you hungry and thirsty and we didn't give you anything? He said, when you walk by the poor in this life, you were walking past me. I was in them, is what he's saying. Let me hit pause for just a second. Is anybody feeling guilty yet? Some measure of, I'm not that generous with my stuff. I don't have that much stuff to be generous with. And the stuff I have, I'm not really giving away. The reality of this is that Jesus is not saying that the way you get a relationship with me is by doing all of these things and by giving your money away and being generous, radically so. He's not saying the way you get a relationship with me is through that. What he's saying is that the way that you show that you have a relationship with me is if these things are true of your life. That they become evidence of the relationship. That the radical generosity becomes the fruit that is born out of the spiritual tree that is Jesus in you. The Holy Spirit at work in your life, freeing you from your seeming need to have all the stuff. Or the certain amount in your bank that, that makes you secure and able to sleep at night. That that becomes the measure of the relationship. And so if you're a Pharisee, back then in Jesus' day, so in our day, someone who's self-righteous and is trying to, to do it on your own... Then, then part of the way that that plays itself out in your life is that when you look at the poor, whether materially or the poor people around us morally speaking, the people who aren't as good as you are or as good as I am or whatever that means, if you're a Pharisee, you look at the poor and you, you respond in your heart, if not out loud, this way. God, I wonder why I'm, he doesn't just get a job. I wonder why she won't just walk over there to that day labor place and go work. I wonder why she won't just stop acting that way and go into the frat house and doing that. I wonder why he won't just start treating people this way. You'll simplify things down to just, man, if he was this, he obviously would go do that. There's so much self-righteousness in that. It ignores, a lot of times, the complex realities of what it means to be poor, both materially and morally, ethically. So what does it look like to respond differently? If God has opened your eyes to see your own condition, you will see that you are poor. That you are poor in spirit. Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who see that you are in need of grace and generosity from outside of yourself. 
And only when you see that you are poor in spirit and in need of grace and generosity from someone outside of you, only then will your heart begin to turn toward those who are poor. Their plight becomes your plight because your plight is their plight. That you have seen your deep need of something outside of yourself. And even if in not exact same way, that aligns you with those people. To where we can't just simply, self-righteously say, well, if they would just blank, then blank. (coughs) So what do we do with our poor in spiritness? What do we do with our spiritual poverty? Is there anyone who can help us? Interestingly, Muhammad says, yeah, you keep the five pillars. That's how you get out of your spiritual poverty. Judaism says, keep the law. That's how you climb your, your, your way out of spiritual poverty. Buddhism says, follow the eightfold path to enlightenment. And Jesus says, come to me. And I will take your poverty onto myself. I will become poor so that you might become rich. How do we see it? Where do we see that? Think of the cross. At the cross, Jesus becomes utterly destitute. He has nothing there. Nothing. He disavows himself of everything. And in so doing, gives us access to the vast resources of heaven. God himself. At the cross, Jesus becomes lonely. He becomes an outsider, cast away. So that you can be brought in. At the cross, Jesus is hes literally a slave to the piece of wood. Can't move. So that you, in your slavery to all kinds of things. Sexual addiction. Friendship addiction. Approval addiction. Grade addiction. Internship addiction. Parental approval. Whatever it is that has you enslaved and frozen Jesus hangs up there and gives you a freedom that you will find nowhere else. At the cross, Jesus does all these things. He takes your nakedness. He takes your shame. The part of you that just has you so, ugh, so embarrassed, so wanting to hide. Jesus hangs up there naked so that he can take that sentiment and that feeling from you. And begin to wipe it away as you're united to Him. You get what He has and He gets what you have. Here's the big point I want to make. Jesus comes and announces that He is your jubilee. He's your jubilee. Listen to what He says in Luke chapter 4. It's up there. I guess it's been up there for a while. He stands up and reads from Isaiah the prophet. He says, the spirit of Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives in recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is saying, I am the Jubilee. Have you ever thought to yourself, I just want to hit reset on this day. On this semester, I want to hit reset on my life. Jesus says, okay, come to me. I'm your reset. Have you ever thought, I, I just want this, this week to be over. 
I just want to get lost. I don't want those people to see me anymore. I need a new friend group. I need a new start. Jesus says, okay, come to me today. I'll give that to you. Come to me tomorrow. I'm your reset button. Come to me next year. Come to me every single day and hit reset. Not as a license to just go sin and do everything crazy that you want to do, but as a means to show you I am gracious and I am here and I am so much more lavish in my forgiveness and in my generosity than you could ever imagine. Jesus says, come to me. I am what you want and what you need and what you long for, whether or not you want it, whether or not you know you need it. The spiritual truth of the Jubilee plays itself out in all kinds of concrete and radical ways. It is the kind of good news that makes poor people rich and that makes rich people generous. That's what happens when Jesus comes into you. I know that most of you don't have significant means right now. You don't have a lot of money. You don't have much of anything. The reality, though, is that some of you, actually most of you at some point will have some money. You'll have some possessions. Another reality is that a few of you will have all the possessions. You'll have a lot of money. You'll have great jobs and big bank accounts and all of this stuff. And Jesus looks at you and says that based on what I've done for you, Let that free you up to do for others the same thing. That it's only when you know Him and what He is and has done for you that you will be freed up to do it for others. If you have been made rich in Him, will you for His sake become a little poorer? Jim Elliott, a famous missionary, said this. It's on the front of your bulletin. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That is upside down. Give what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. That is the way of the gospel. It's the way to life and freedom. And it can be yours as as you are united to Jesus by faith. You receive what He has done on on your behalf. It's not a series of paths and steps and pillars. It is by grace. You receive it. He begins to change you from the inside. Please pray with me.